All right, sorry about that. A couple technical difficulties, just uh, figuring out which mic to use, but we are, we are good to go now. So, how is everybody doing tonight? Good, good, good to see you on this Wednesday night. I'm always excited whenever I have the opportunity to share from the Word of God uh, on uh, Wednesday nights with this group. This is always a, a blessing for me. So, Pastor Mike has been in his series, Strength and Weakness, over the past few weeks. Um, he, last week, he went through 2 Corinthians 3. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, with a sermon entitled, Never Go Back. He talked about, um, well, well, we'll get into that in a second. But, you know, to kind of give a backdrop on what was happening in this letter, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth. And what was beginning to happen is that there were false teachers who were rising up, and they were beginning to uh, teach things that were not true. And it really took the church, was trying to take the church back to the law. To the original, uh, the, the law given by Moses, and really worked against uh, what Jesus had given in the Gospels. And so Paul is refuting much of that. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Mike talked about nostalgia, how we have to be careful going back to the old things, right? The things that were once important to us. As God does a new thing, we need to embrace those things and move forward. And we could even say that that was Paul's defense of his ministry. Those false teachers, they weren't just coming up and saying, hey, here's something new to be teaching. They were saying, you need to be careful of that Paul guy. He is a false teacher. He doesn't even communicate well. And his message is heretical. And you need to be careful because he's not a person to be trusted at all. And so Paul is defending his ministry. And I'm going to pull out a timer here real quick so that I don't go too long today. Uh, for your sake, I could go all day talking about this stuff. But So last week we could say was Paul's defense of his ministry. This week we could say is Paul's defense of the gospel. Last week he kind of defended who he was, his credibility. We'll get into that a little bit more recap. Now he's defending the message itself. And so we're going to jump right in to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is verses 1 through 7. We're going to start with verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in trickery or distorting the word of God, but by the open proclamation of the truth, commending ourselves to every person's conscience in the sight of God. So let's kind of break this verse up a little bit. First, to start off with, therefore, since we have this ministry. Have you ever noticed that often whenever somebody takes just any verse, there's things in there that really need context? This ministry. Well, what ministry? If we started in chapter 4, we wouldn't know what ministry he's talking about. So we're going to take a step back, and we are going to move back into chapter 3. Recap a little bit of what Pastor Mike talked about last week. And so I'm going to read chapters 3, verses 1 through 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all people, revealing yourselves that you are a letter of Christ, delivered by us, written not with the ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets on human hearts. Now, so what is this ministry? As Pastor Mike talked about last week, this ministry is a lifestyle as opposed to rule following. The law became rule following. I talked about that the last time that I was here. How that wasn't the intention of the law, but it became something that people practiced as a way to earn merit with God. What Paul is bringing now with this message is a lifestyle versus rule following. Ministry of life versus a ministry of death. Paul called the law a ministry of death. Why? Because it showed us 
a reflection of the sinful nature in us. It was a list of the things that we did that were in opposition to the character of God, and those things led to death. Why is the gospel a ministry of life? Because it says, yes, you are those things, but there's also a way. There is a, a, another door. It's a ministry of greater glory. Talked about how the law had a glory, but it was veiled, right? Just like how Moses had a veil across his face. The gospel is unveiled. It's the full revelation of God's redemptive plan. The, the, the Jewish people under the law couldn't understand what God was doing through the law, but with the gospel we saw the full picture, specifically with Christ on the cross. And lastly, it's a ministry of unveiled revelation, the same exact thing like I just mentioned. Christ on the cross is the perfect image of what our loving God looks like, and that's what the gospel presents. So he's compared and contrasted these two things. This ministry, as he says it, therefore, since we have this ministry, this ministry of life, this ministry of the Spirit, therefore, since we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Now, whenever we talk about losing heart in our common uh, phrases, if I said, yeah, I've really lost heart about maybe a, a sports team or a political candidate, something like that, I'm usually saying I have been become discouraged or I've lost faith in whatever it was that I had my faith placed in. But in the original Greek, this phrase would have, would have been deeper. It would have meant more something uh, to the lines of uh, doing evil, trickery. Because we have this ministry that's been given through, through mercy, we do not do evil in our hearts. We do not do trickery. Specifically, right after that, he says, we do not adulter the word. We do not adulter the word or handle the word with deceit. Now, whenever we hear the word adulter, probably the first thing that comes to mind is adultery, a, a defilement, right? But there, there's a little bit more of a practical application that the original audience would have understood. When Paul says adulter the word, there were two things that probably came to the minds of the original, original readers. The first one was the idea that merchants would often adulter their product to make it more appealing. Uh, one example of that might be they might put certain mixtures of oils within uh, a concoction to make it seem more pleasing. Another one might be uh, they would often use wax as a way of making the product look better. Uh, sculptors would often do this. Uh, sculptors would take a, something, something that they had sculpted and they would put wax to fill in the cracks so it looked like it was more complete than it actually was. Or furniture makers would often take wax and they would wipe down the wood on the furniture so that before it was purchased, it looked like the wood was a better quality than it actually was. In fact, this led to merchants often putting signs on the front of their stores that said the Latin word sinicera, which actually meant without wax. And so people going in knew, okay, this is a merchant that I can trust. What they're providing me with is what they're actually selling. They haven't adulterated it. They haven't fabricated it. It's, it's what's being sold. Um, and that's actually where we get our word sincere from. If I send, give you a sincere greeting, it's genuine. It's from the heart. It's not uh, coded with something to uh, make you, uh, to try to please you, to try to uh, make it seem more appealing. It's genuine. It's from the heart. It's sincere. And that's a great illustration. Uh, what comes to my mind even more relevantly is uh, the Andy Griffith show where Barney buys the car. 
If you ever, you guys remember that one? Where Barney buys a car from this widow who she never drove it. She only drove it on Sundays to church with white kit gloves. And uh, he drives it, and it's going fine until all of a sudden it stops. And he takes it over to, to, to Gomer's shop, and they open up the hood, and it's full of sawdust. And they said, well, that's an old trick that they used to use because the sawdust would make it make it really run really well for about 24 hours, and then the car would just shut down, and you couldn't use it anymore. So that's what comes to my mind as somebody who's adultered their product. So that's the first thing that probably would have come to the minds of the original readers. The second thing would have been a group known as the sophists. The, the sophists were educators. Uh, they were socially effective. They were very up with the times. They were integrated in their personalities. They were teachers who would instruct aspiring politicians in the tricks of the trade, devices in oratory, knack for swaying an audience, secrets to gaining the vote, and to make the worse appear the better argument. They would go around traveling usually, and they would find people and they would teach them this way of presenting themselves. We see that today often with politicians, right? They are able to convince you, hey, if you vote for me, everything's going to be great. And they have a good way of swaying you. I, I know that there have been politicians in the past that we knew that what they were saying wasn't true. But something about the way they said it just really grabbed our attention, right? And that was very similar. Some of those th same things that were taught to those politicians today probably originated with the sophists. The philosopher Plato, he described sophists as paid hunters after the young and wealthy, as merchants of knowledge, as athletes in a contest of words and perjurers of the soul. Plato sought to distinguish sophists from philosophers, arguing that a sophist was a person who made his living through deception, whereas a philosopher was a lover of wisdom who sought the truth. Now, this group known as the sophists, they would go around, they would teach people these tricks. And it actually happened very prominently in Corinth. In fact, their way of persuading people became known as the Corinthian way. Where are we? We're in the letter to the Corinthians. So this would have been something that the people who are reading this letter would have caught on very quickly that this is what Paul's talking about, about these group of persuaders. Now, why is he talking about Greek philosophy in a letter that's talking about the gospel? Well, I'll explain. Just like today, we would use an illustration, just like I did a moment ago, to bring a truth from Scripture and make it applicable to those hearing it. What he's doing here, the philosopher, when, when Plato said that they were a lover of wisdom, that's actually very literal. The term philosophy comes from two Greek words, philo and sophia. Philo meaning love and sophia meaning wisdom. So a philosopher was quite literally a lover of wisdom, somebody who sought truth, somebody who their study and their, uh, their occupation was to find truth in all things. The sophist, on the other hand, was a practitioner of wisdom a practitioner of wisdom, somebody who financially gained from wisdom, somebody who financially gained from presenting a truth, a particular point of, 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 of looking at things. And what, he's, what Paul is doing here is he's kind of comparing these two uh, persuasions, if you will, of approaching philosophy now to the word. He's saying that the apostles, him included, the apostles and the message that they bring, they are lovers of the word. Lovers of the gospel, what they do is driven by a deep, deep love and dedication for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're willing to put their lives on the line, similar to how many philosophers did with what they believe. They're willing to 
to, to not make any money, to not have a place to live, to travel from place to place because of the love that they have for the word. And what he's doing here is he's comparing the sophist to those false teachers who were benefiting from trying to make the apostles seem not credible with what they were teaching. Now, sadly, we see this today. We see individuals who, in their preaching, they attempt to persuade a crowd. And the thing about the sophists is that they knew that what they were teaching was not accurate content. It didn't matter if it was true. It mattered if they could persuade the crowd. I see this often. Uh, I I make it a point, just a part of my job as a preacher, to watch as many sermons as I can possibly get my hands on. I want to have as much exposure to different styles. I listen to a lot of different types of preaching to kind of see what's effective, what helps. And I notice that while there are many preachers who are dedicated to the Word, and they they spend line after line after line teaching people what the Bible actually said, there are a lot of preachers out there who are a lot more like the sophists. They have a great oratory skill. They're great at persuading people to a particular opinion, but what they're teaching is not accurate. Or if it is accurate, it's very surface level. It's very unchanging uh, to, to the heart. It's something that makes people go, oh, that's good, amen. But in reality, it doesn't apply to our lives. And what's, what's more sad to me is that many people grab a hold of that because they're looking for somebody who really entertains. They're looking for somebody who is a great communicator. Now, there is nothing wrong with being a great communicator. We have a pastor here, a senior pastor here, who is an incredible communicator, but he also has a heart for the word. So what I'm talking about is the heart condition. There are many pastors today who don't care about the integrity of the message. They just care about how many people sit and hear them, hear them preach it. That's what Paul's talking about. And sadly, we see that today. What is Paul trying to say here? He's saying that the gospel is a treasure. The word of God is a treasure. And that these other individuals, these false teachers, they have diluted and watered down that gospel. They have tried to change it. And the gospel is something that should be preserved. And the gospel is the message that the apostles are bringing. Paul declares the gospel, the word of God, doesn't need to be enhanced to be effective. It it in in itself has the power to change lives. Now, the objection that comes up to this is, but don't we need to try to communicate the gospel in the most effective way possible? Well, absolutely. But in doing that, we have to be careful that we preserve the gospel itself. Now, I understand that the gospel can be hard to understand. Scripture can be hard to understand. Even with 10 years of college and, and studying scripture most of my life, there are still places in scripture that I have no idea what it's trying to communicate. I might know the theories, but I haven't come, quite made up my mind. It's, it's, there's difficult parts, right? So we have to find ways that communicate in the easiest way possible. We do that with illustrations. I just did that a moment ago. So I'm not knocking that at all. What I am saying, though, is that the gospel, the word of God, in and of itself, as Paul is saying, does not need to be enhanced to be effective. No matter how hard we try, there are some people who will never hear the word and receive it. And you might say, well, that, that can't be true. I don't, I don't know that I agree with that. Well, I'm not just the one that's saying it. Paul actually says it in verses 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is Paul saying? Well, let's go back to chapter 3 again, where he talked about that the law was veiled, that the people who observed the law could not understand its fullness because it was veiled. Now, we know that then he goes on to say the gospel is unveiled. It's full revelation. So why is he now saying that it's veiled. Well, he says it's only veiled to those who are perishing. Well, who was perishing? We see that in, in verse 4 where it says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. The perishing are the unbelieving, and they have been veiled by the God of this earth, who is Satan, who is the devil, so that they will not see the light of the gospel. So what are we saying here? We're saying that while the gospel itself is full disclosure. While the gospel itself has been made fully known, there are individuals who are not able to see it and receive it because Satan has put a veil over their eyes and they're not able to. What I'm getting at here is that there are people who will sit in our seats and they will hear the word of God and they will never receive it because that veil is over their eyes. And it doesn't matter how many illustrations I use. It doesn't matter how well I articulate. It doesn't matter if I can pronunciate the pericope, right? It doesn't matter how well I can get the word out. There's something missing between what, what's happening, the Spirit putting the word in me, and the Spirit allowing them to receive it. Jesus actually makes this even more clear in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 8. On that day, Jesus had gone to the house and was, and was sitting by the sea. A large crowd gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing by the beach. And he told them, Many things and parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came up and ate them. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up immediately because of the no depth of soil. But after the sun rose, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. But others fell on the good soil and yielded crops. Some, a hundred, some 60, some 30 times as much. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit. What is the first type? This, so get the image of the sower going through and he's sowing seed. Now he's not doing this strategically. He's sowing seed. He's walking through and he's scattering the seed. Um, what, what begins to happen? Some of the seed falls on the rocky place and it's not able to find the soil. It's not able to get in there. The birds come, they eat it. There's no way that it could produce fruit because it never grabbed a hold of the soil. The next type, the seed fell on the shallow ground. So it fell on ground that really didn't have the opportunity for the roots to dig in deep, but it fell on the shallow ground. It sprang up quickly, and the sun scorched it out because it didn't have enough life within it. Seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns choked it out. So it fell among the thistles, and as it grew, the thorns choked it out. Seed fell on good soil, it produced fruit. Now, what is Jesus saying? Let's jump into verses 18 through 32 as he gives an explanation. Listen then to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. What has ever been sown in his heart, this is the one sown with seed beside the road. The one sown with seed on the rocky places, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself. But it is also temporary, and when afflicted or persecution, when affliction or persecution occurs because of the word, it, it immediately falls away. 
And the one sows with seed among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word. And the anxiety of the word of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But the one who sows with seed on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Who indeed bears fruit and produces some 100, some 60, some 30 times as much. So let's take what we just learned and apply it to this explanation. Those who hear but don't understand. Those are the first ones where the seed is scattered on the ground, the birds come and they eat it up. Some people will hear the word of God and they simply won't understand it because of the veil that's been placed over them. Those who receive the word with joy, but they do not have root. These are those in the shallow ground. I, I think we've all known individuals who they come to church and they hear the gospel and the gospel's inviting and it brings them in and it's, it's, it's great. Oh wow, there's a God who loves me, who sent his son. Of course I want that. I'm going to grab a hold of it, but it's at a shallow level. As long as I get the good stuff, I'm in. But the moment that things start getting tough, the moment that, oh, so not only do I have to repent, but now I have to confess Jesus as Lord and I have to live under his lordship. I don't, I don't know about that. I, that. That seems a little uncomfortable. Then the sun comes and scorches it away. The seed never takes root. The third category, those who receive the word, but worry and doubt choke it out. So these are those who receive it. It's going well. And then suddenly life happens as it does for all of us. And they lose sight of the, the word that was placed in them. And then the last one, as we know, those who hear the word and understand it. Those are the ones who hear the word and they say, you know what, whatever, whatever it takes, I want that. I want that. Now, no matter how much we dress it up, those who are veiled by the enemy will never accept truth until the eye, their eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit. What they will accept, however, is a counterfeit, watered-down version of the gospel which has been twisted to appeal to our wants and desires. What's Paul saying? He's saying, because we have this ministry of the Spirit, we don't have to come to you with a message that appeals to our audience. We don't have to impress you with how wise and astute we are. We preach the gospel, and the Spirit is the one who draws and the one who unveils. So, we get this picture now of Paul saying, I may not be a good, a good preacher. And there's actually a lot of scholarly uh, debate on this that Paul... Sometimes in my mind, I get this idea that Paul was a very charismatic individual. Sometimes we think he must have been in order to inspire the church like he did. He must have been a great communicator. We know that he was trained in rhetoric, things like that. But there's actually reason to believe, based on some of his writings, that he was not a good communicator, that he actually may not have been physically appealing at all. Some people believe that whenever he talks about a thorn in the flesh, that this was actually a physical defect that caused people to kind of want to stay away from him. But what he's saying, if that's true what he's saying is i can come to you exactly as i am exactly as an unqualified untalented person who used to be a persecutor of christians mind you and i can change the church not because of me but because of the message that i'm preaching now as we jump down into verses five through six for those for we do not preach ourselves uh, but christ jesus as lord and ourselves as your bond servants on account of jesus for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He says, we don't do any of this to glorify ourselves. We don't do any of this to make ourselves look good. We do these things to, uh, to glorify God. Throwing notes over here, but that's okay. 
I don't have to be a good presenter in order to get my point across, right? (laughs) Paul's preaching was marked by open proclamation of truth. It changed lives. It showed demonstrations. And he was differentiating himself from those who are handling the word of God deceitfully. Now, this word here, different translations have it uh, placed differently. Open proclamation, some say manifestations. The word is the word uh, phanerosis, which can be translated as manifestations, coming to light, full disclosure. Paul is saying, when we brought this message to you, we didn't hide any of it. We brought it fully. Now, one of the things he's speaking out against is a heresy that kind of came up in the church, and it was it really came into fruition afterwards, but it was starting to take form, and it was a normal thing for religions in that day, where if you want to learn more, uh, come be a part of us, and we'll teach you more. Uh, okay, if you want to learn even more than that, now you've got to come to this inner circle, and now you've got to come to this inner circle, and we'll keep teaching you levels of truth. That was kind of it was a pagan way of learning revelation of God. Now, we actually see this today. There's certain groups that teach this way and Scientology and other groups that would say, uh, we will let you in at kind of the lower levels, and the more you want to know, the more you have to commit to us, the more you have to become a part of us. Now, the gospel never worked that way. The gospel never functioned in that way. And in, in the gospel, full disclosure, we're going to tell you everything about it. Now, obviously, as we grow and we mature, God opens our eyes and we become more mature in our understanding of Scripture, certainly. But the gospel itself, anybody at any level can understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Christ is that Savior and that there's only way to have righteousness. Anybody can understand that. That's the fullness of the gospel. It's simple. It's not complicated. And that's what Paul is saying. These others who are coming, they're not telling you everything. They're telling you what benefits them. Again, like the sophists. They're telling you what gets their point across, what persuades you. We didn't do that. We came with a full disclosure, a full manifestation We came with complete knowledge. We didn't hide anything. So you compare the two, and you tell me which one seems more effective. With our message, there's life change. With our message, there's demonstrations of power. With our message, things are happening. With their message, it's just trying to take you back to what was, not what is, not what you're seeing in front of you. Again, this is a defense of the gospel. Paul here uses the word, some translations say bondservant. It's the Greek word doulos, doulos. Now, different translations translate it differently. Uh, That's why they're different translations, if you didn't know, because they translate it differently. But uh, doulos can be translated uh, as servant, bond servant, or the one that's the most, uh, people don't really like this one, is slave. Now, if you do a word study on doulos, uh, bond servant gets a little closer to it. Servant really isn't a good translation at all because servant implies somebody who was paid to do a service. They were free. They could leave anytime they want. A bond servant's a little bit closer, but really, doulos was never used in Paul's time for any other meaning than the word slave. Now, slave has a negative connotation in our, our, our day-to-day because of some of our nation's history. But in that particular time, slave would have been understood very differently. Um, first of all, slave, he was saying, I'm a slave to Christ. Not a slave to the people, a slave to Christ. Slaves of nobility, <clears throat> so slaves who were a, uh, in, in servitude or um, ownership to a king or nobility, 
they would have had rights and privileges that were greater than the free commoner. They would have had provision in their lives that the free commoner wouldn't have had. So think about, for example, the Israelites in Egypt. Now, we know that they were mistreated, but when they left Egypt, what did they want to do? They wanted to go back, not because the conditions were great, but because they had food anytime they wanted, and they had provision. They were being kept alive. Now, I'm not making the argument that they should have, but what I am saying is that slavery was much different then than it is today, or than it was in our history. And he's saying, I am a slave to Christ. They would have understood this as slave to nobility. This, uh, this person has rights and privileges above the free commoner. This is a position of honor. And it says that the bondservant had been lent to the church. Jesus had lent Paul to the church on his behalf. Now, this is important because Paul's own ministry exemplifies the principles he explains here. He desired others to view him as a servant and as a manager, not as a celebrity. Paul was exclusively concerned with pleasing the master who had sent him. Consequently, this left no room for personal pride or arrogance based on his giftedness or result of his ministry. What he's saying here is I am not coming to you because I'm a great orator. I'm not coming to you with an ulterior motive. When I came to you, it was simply to show you the message that was in my heart, the message that Jesus himself had given to me to give to you. Those others who were coming, who were trying to discredit me and the other apostles, they had an ulterior motive. What they were providing you is not true. It doesn't sustain life change. And it has nothing to do with my gifts. I do believe that Paul was probably not a good communicator because it fits with what he's saying here. I think he's saying, I came to you, there was no appeal. What you accepted from me was completely because the Spirit opened your eyes to see that it was true. Now, this is a really difficult thing for Christians to accept. The idea that we have nothing to offer, and that's exactly how God wants it. You know, in, in years of, of doing discipleship and working with people, I find that most Christians have a very difficult time, a difficult time and experience accepting that God accepts us exactly as we are. I know I dealt with that for a long time growing up, that he truly accepts me how I am. Now, he changes me. He doesn't leave me how I am, but he accepts me how I am. And what I've observed is that people typically fall into two camps when they come face-to-face with that camp, the fir- face-to-face with that truth. The first camp is that they reject it entirely. That can't be true. God must not know what I've done, or he wouldn't accept me. He wouldn't offer that. The second camp says, well, I can accept that he wants me, but I am going to spend the rest of my life trying to earn approval from God. That seems to be the way that we approach it. And so we try to outserve God. We try to outgive God. We try to do everything we can. We create rules that we need to follow that we set around ourselves because surely God couldn't truly love who I truly am, right? That's a difficult thing for us to accept, but it's very important. We wrestle with the question, why would God want me as I am? And Paul actually answers this question in verse seven. But we have this treasure in earthen containers so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be, uh, will be of God and not of ourselves. I'm going to read that again. But we have this treasure in earthly containers, so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. Now, 
earthly vessels. I've heard that all through my life. I had no idea what it meant. As you kind of break this down and understand a little bit more, the word earthen we get from the Greek word ostrakinos, ostrakinos, and it would have connoted uh, fragile, weak, um, breakable, just cheap, and just really bad material. Have you ever had something that you bought and it was just really, really bad material? You probably didn't pay much for it. Maybe you bought it. I, I, now that I have a 13-month-old, we buy a lot of stuff like that because the good stuff ends up getting broken very quickly. So we buy a lot of cheap stuff so we can replace it pretty easily. We buy a lot of stuff that is ostrakinos, okay? That's also where we get our word ostracized from. An ostracized person is a person who's been rejected and neglected. We don't want that person because they are invaluable, or not invaluable, they have no value, valueless. They are of no use to us. We are going to ostracize them. Paul is saying that is where God has chosen to put his kingdom. The church is a weak and fragile vessel. Can we agree on that? The church is a weak, fragile, broken place. The church is full of broken people. The church is full of people who are falling apart. The church is full of people who are having a hard time making it through life. And, I, you know, I don't know the background of every person in this room. Maybe you've been in this church your whole life. Maybe you've been in a handful of churches. I can tell you, I've mentioned my story before. Growing up as an evangelist son, we traveled most of my life from church to church to church. I think I counted from four, to, four years old to 11. We went to about 200 different churches. So I've seen a large spectrum of churches. And let me tell you that your experience here is not very different than any church that I've ever been at. Now, there's a spectrum, obviously. There are some churches that are healthier and there's some churches that are uh, struggling. But we all are full of broken people. People are mean. People are rude. People are hypocrites. The church is full of liars. The church is full of cheats, defamers, debauchers. But you know what? So is the world. The difference is here, there's a work happening. Here, we have a God who's perfecting us. Now, you may have been offended by me at times. I can guarantee you that I'm a lot better than I was in the past. And I'll be a lot better in the future than I am today, as will every single person in this room. Because while we are broken people, we are being fixed in the presence of our God. But why would God choose this brokenness to bring his kingdom on earth? I mean, you think about the Tibetan monks who seek piety and they, they, uh, they sacrifice so much pleasure in their life for this pursuit of some higher understanding, some nirvana. Uh, they try to store up karma. And I also think about uh, the radical Muslims who would give up their life for their cause. And then we have the church who sit on Sunday morning thinking about how quickly they can get out of the foyer to get to the football game or to the table at the restaurant, or maybe they don't come at all because they had a really rough Saturday night. This is who God has chosen to bring his kingdom on earth. Why? Why would he not use the more pious people of the world when clearly we're broken, clearly we struggle? Well, our weakness reveals the glory of God. Now, I have a, uh, I told you I have a 13-month-old, and he is getting to the point now that his diapers, how can I put this nicely? They stink. Can I just say that? They are, they are rough. They are rough. And I brought one tonight because I thought I, you know, that might be beneficial. I brought this tonight, and, uh, you know, we try to, we ostracize these as quickly as possible. We get them out of the house as quickly as we possibly can. Um, you know, they've come up with some great diaper pails and things that have a uh, baking soda 
pack it in there. It makes it a lot easier. But we try to get these out of the house as quickly as we can. And, you know, I'm looking at this diaper right now. I've changed a lot of diapers. I'm very experienced with diapers. I'm looking at this one right now. This one did not just come out of the package. This one is not brand new. You can tell that it's folded over. Uh, it's, it's packed in there, and it's folded tightly, so there's probably something that you're trying to keep in so that it doesn't get out. That's never fun. Uh, I'm looking at the front here, and you see the blue stripe on the front? I know from experience that means that the diaper is dirty because if it wasn't, it would be yellow. That's a great, uh, it saves a lot of time. So I'm looking at this diaper right now, and you can only imagine how bad it stinks up here. Now, if I were to offer this diaper to somebody, who would want it? Any, any takers? Anybody want to take this home with you? No? Oh, don't fight over it. Okay. Now, what if I were to open it? If I were to open it here. Oh, there's $10 in there. Now, you didn't want it when you looked at it from the outside and you thought that it stunk and you thought that it was broken and you thought that it was useless. You wanted to ostracize it. You wanted to, it was an earthen vessel, right? It was useless. But once I opened it up, there was something of value in it. There was something that I was hiding within it. Now, why would I do that? Why would I put my money in what looks like a dirty diaper? Well, let's just be honest because I don't want you to steal it, Right? I don't want you to, to approach it. If I had the offering receptacle up here and I said, who wants to take this home with them? I'd probably have some takers, right? Because from the outside, it looks like value. But in the inside, that's where the value really lies, right? Jesus chose to use the broken church to bring his kingdom onto the earth because our weakness reveals the glory of God. What do I mean by that? I mean... When he looks at us, when, when the world looks at us, they see a, a room full of hypocrites. How many people have you heard that they, they'll never step foot in church because of all the hypocrites, because of all the broken people, because this is, there's just too many people there who preach one thing, but they don't do the others. And it's like, well, what do you do? You know, we all are in the same boat. We're all in the same situation. But God chose to use that brokenness because just like what Paul says in verse 7, so that the glory would go to God and not to us. If we were all pious individuals, if we were all sold out radical Christians, then the world would look at us and say, wow, they're effective because of what they do, because of their practice, because of their piety, because of their dedication to their faith. We would neglect that it's actually God working through us that makes things effective. God has always chosen the foolish things of the earth to confound the wise. Paul says that in other letters. He talks about how, you, you, you take for example Samson. I've heard, uh, I've heard people say that Samson probably was not this big buff guy. He was probably very scrawny because they would ask the question, where does he get his strength from? If he was strong, if he was this you know, specimen of a man, then people wouldn't ask that question because it would make sense. He was probably very scrawny again. Because God wants his power to be glorified, not the vessel. So I have two invitations here as we, as we kind of wrap things up today. The first thing is that if you feel that you don't measure up, if you feel that you're inadequate, then you're exactly where you need to be. And the invitation today is to lighten up a little. Take it easy on yourself. You're a work in progress. 
You're a broken vessel, absolutely, but you're a broken vessel in the hands of the most skilled sculptor there is. And he's using your imperfection, he's using your weakness to glorify himself through you. So that whenever people look at my life, they would say, wow, Devin doesn't have it all together. But he serves a God who does. And he serves a God who's bringing it all together. When people look at Bethel Temple, I I know, I'm sure, there have been people who have walked in our doors and they've walked right back out because somebody said something, somebody offended them. That is any church anywhere. But I want people to look at Bethel Temple and I want them to say, wow, what an incredible church. Not because they have incredible people, but because they serve an incredible God. I've always said the most beautiful thing about the church is that we as imperfect people can perfectly worship a perfect God. We are perfectly saved by a perfect Savior. That's what makes the church incredible. So the first invitation is that you will see yourself as a vessel in the hands of God to use in, even in the midst of your imperfection, that you don't have to be perfect before he can use you. He wants to use you right where you are. And secondly, to realize that the church is imperfect and will remain imperfect until we, we come face to face with Jesus, of course. The beauty of the church is that we are imperfect people, perfectly saved by a perfect Savior. Let's lighten up on each other too. Let's, let's take a step back and realize that what we all bring to the table, what we all bring on a Sunday morning is all of the baggage that we have in our lives. We all bring it. There's not one of us who doesn't. We all bring it into our relationships. And most importantly, to remember that what we encounter here is no different than what we'll encounter out there, except in here, we have a perfect God who's keeping it all together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to share this word with your people today. And I pray that it would sink in deep. I thank you for the letters that Paul wrote and the words that he wrote. While they were not written to us originally, they resound in our society. They resound so much of what he wrote to them is the same today. We are an imperfect church, just like the church at Corinth was. And I I pray that you would help us to remember that that does not make us ineffective that that does not make us unable to reach our community, that we don't have to have it all together before we can draw people in. We don't have to have it all together before we can reach out to others. In our own personal life, I pray, Father, that you would remind us that we are equipped enough to reach those around us, that it's even better that we don't have it together because we're, what, what message we have to give is so much more applicable to them. I pray that you would remind us that while we are earthen vessels, you have hidden your treasure within us to bring glory to yourself. I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. We will see you Sunday. And uh, have a great rest of your week.